0: This is my incredible wife of 47 years, yeah. We just crossed 47, Christmas Eve of 2022, and, um, you know, the neat thing about 40, after you hit, kind of get this station in life, like, we, we've kind of decided, I think we're just going to keep doing it, <laughs> you know, like, it, it's just, why, why would you quit now? It's like, if we've already invested all this time, and... Um, you know, we know each other fairly well. Um, we're, still, we're still discovering things. I, I realize that my life would be very chaotic if it wasn't for her, because she is the one that says, have you combed your hair as I'm getting ready to go out of the house? She's the one that reminded me today I'm my. I'm dealing with some stuff in my throat and she's the one that reminded me like several times, including when we pulled in the driveway because I didn't do it correctly, make sure you cough in your sleeve. I've been through two years of the pandemic. I know where to cough now. If I've learned anything in the last two years, I know where to cough. But she still reminds me and then reminds me that you just used your hand. So she's She's extremely valuable to me, and I love her much.
1: You want to say anything? you do I don't, do. but do. <laughs> I'm kind of here, aren't I? <laughs> so he doesn't always call me up, <laughs> so if, if I roll my eyes at him, you'll know why. <laughs> but I'm glad to hear I don't always get to come when he goes out to speak. Um, we've kind of have a b and b at our house, so I don't always get out on Sundays, which was his idea so <laughs> He springs all this stuff on me. So our agreements are, I think we should do a B&B. This is how we discuss it. I'm like, okay, you do the cooking. So he does all the cooking. And if you're not home and you're not going to cook, it's closed. And he's like, okay, I think. <laughs> so I do the cleaning. He does the cooking. It's It's been that way our whole life. He springs something on me. I'm like, okay, now what part of this am I going to do? join in with? You know, so... We don't really argue, we just, this is where I am, this is where you are, and this is what's going to happen. So everybody looks at me and goes, how do you keep up with him? I'm like, I don't. I don't keep up with him. I can't. I robbed the cradle. (laughs) So, (laughs) not that bad, but I did. That's what his mom always told me. And, um, I'll be 70. So he's 67. I still Rob the cradles, mom no, I said. I turned
0: 68 yesterday. I haven't put that on yet. So. All right,
1: he's just turned 68. Yeah. So.
0: And she'll be 70 in October. October,
1: so. But he's still my energizing bunny. He's still got more energy than me, always. So as a couple, it has been um, very interesting. I'm an only child. He's the oldest of two. And so I can say that we butt heads quite a bit. We don't ever scream and holler and rave, but we do butt heads, which a lot of times means everything comes to a screeching halt (laughs) because we have agreed that we'll do nothing without the other one agreeing most of the time. So, yeah, so sometimes things just don't move forward like they should. And probably I'm the one that holds up the works. So, you know, the only child, um, I will get the last word. Doesn't always happen that way, but I think it should no matter what. So anyway. it has been fantastic if any of you are in middle marriage or new marriage hang in there it gets better the longer it goes it gets easier I'm just saying it's worth it it's worth the long haul yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I think we, we both can say we're more in love today and having more fun being in love than we've had at any other point in our marriage I think, I think we both can, can safely say that and if you can, I've said it for you, and so that's, that's good, that's good. Um, so I, I, it's just good to be back with you. I, I, was really, uh, I really enjoyed the, the songs that were selected for today. Um, kind of the title of what I want to talk about today is just called Lost Things, and we're going to be in the 15th chapter of Luke, and we're going to park there, so I won't have you running all over the place. And, of course, in the 15th chapter of Luke, there's three lost things. There's a lost sheep, lost coin, and then a lost son. And I'm going to move through the two kind of quickly. I want to park most on the lost son, and then we're going to kind of come back because we're we're in, in my view, we're at a new threshold in the Reformation that's happening right now in the church and on the planet. It's been going on for a while, and um, I feel like we've stepped into the next the next piece. It doesn't bother me a bit. It doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, so the Luke fifteen verses one through seven is the lost sheep. and in the in those verses, So the shepherd leaves the ninety and nine to go find the one that's lost. When he finds it, he brings it back, and when he brings the the lost one back, he calls all of his friends to come and rejoice over the one that's been found. There is this point of celebration at the fact that one's been found. And then we have the lost coin, and so the woman loses this one coin, And she diligently is searching her house, and she's shining a light. She's sweeping the floor. Interesting thing in sweeping the floor, if you're looking for a coin and you sweep the floor, you pick up a lot of other stuff in finding the coin. I don't know what the spiritual implication of that is. I just think it's important, and I hadn't thought about it until this morning when I was reviewing my notes. So you can think about it. But something about this sweeping... When the Spirit of God moves and is looking for the lost one, there's a lot of things that get attracted in that moment. But God doesn't lose sight of the one that he's after. So every one of us at some point were lost. Every one of us at some point, God went after us. He saw us, and he pursued us, and he didn't relent until he found us. And, of course, he always knew where we were at. That's why he found us. It's not like it was a surprise. He just had to work within the context of my lostness to get me to the point that I could respond to him finding me. But, again, the woman finds this coin, and she calls all of her friends and says, Come and celebrate with me this one. I found my coin. Come and celebrate. There should always be this point of celebration. If heaven is celebrating when the lost one is found, then earth should be reflecting that same place of celebration when one is found. That I'm going to track back to in a bit. So Jesus is laying out this, and I, 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 I always, I just enjoy the way he has a way of giving us something simple that we go, wow, I really like that. And so I move in a little bit closer to him. And then he'll give me something else. Wow, I really like that. And so I'll move in a little bit closer. And then he lays the big one on me that he would not have got me if he had not enticed me with these, these smaller ones. So I feel like that's what he's done here with the people he's speaking with. He talks about The lost sheep, everybody go. yeah, I get that. I get that. I know what that feels like. The lost coin, oh, yeah, we've all lost coins. So I get that. I know what that feels like. But then he brings us to this story of the lost son, starting with verse 11. I know we're all very familiar with this, but, um, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, And he sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs pigs eat. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came, and he drew near to the house. And he heard the music and dancing. That kind of messes with some people's theology, but that's what they were doing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound now I'm sure most of us have heard this parable talked about a lot. we probably could all recite it and recite how it's been presented it's, it's, it's one of the you know it's one of the top ones that we've if we've been in church any length of time we've been exposed to this parable. I want to give us a little bit of a background to this parable because Jesus, like other stories that he told, he didn't make stories up on the fly. These were actually stories that would have been part of the culture, stories that everybody was familiar with, just like we're all familiar with this parable. And he would take them and then turn them, and that's what he does in this parable. In the original parable, this parable would have been told around every Jewish home, because it was a parable that you tell your kids so that they'll behave. Except the way that Jesus tells the parable is not the way the father of the house would tell the parable. The way it's told in a Jewish home is, once you you do this, like the younger son, once you take your father's inheritance, you go to a foreign land, you squander it, you have dishonored your father, you have called your father dead, you can't come back. There is no way to come back. And they and so that was instilled in the kids. Don't do this. Because once you do, you've lost your family. You've lost your community. You've lost everything. So behave. Jesus takes the story, but turns it. And makes it say something entirely different. So... Here's here's how this, if we lived in a Jewish community, this is what this parable would look like if a child had done what the younger son has done and was going to come back. So first, when the son asked his father for his inheritance, that wasn't just saying, Dad, give me some money. You're asking for an inheritance. You're part of the inheritance, which is only granted when the one who possesses the inheritance, dies. And then it passes on. But the son was saying, "'Dad, I count you as dead. "'Give me what I'm owed.'" And so it was very dishonoring to do that to a father, of course. I mean, it would be dishonoring here, even in our culture, which isn't as, as community-centered anymore as it used to be. But if any of our children came to us and just said, "'Right now, give me what, what, what's my portion.'" well, that would be extremely dishonoring. In this community, it's even going further because now I'm saying, I'm counting my father as dead. Now, the amazing thing to me in the story, the way Jesus tells it, is the father gave the son his portion. It could have been a confrontation. It could have, A lot of different things could have happened, but the father gave him his portion. And so now the younger son takes that goes into the land of the Gentiles, squanders that inheritance. Again, according to the law, if I, um, if I am acting on my father's behalf and I do ba- a bad business deal and I lose my father's money to Gentiles, then even though I've brought shame to my father, I can redeem myself. I can do whatever I can do to get the money back. And if I can give back to my father the money that I lost of his, then my relationship with him is restored. In this case, the younger son goes into the land of the Gentiles and ponder or waste all of the inheritance to the point now he has nothing. Right? So, again, that's just a very, very dishonoring place to be. So, in the community where this story would have been taking place, when a, when a child acts the way this young, the younger son has acted, then it becomes the responsibility of the elders of the community to deal with that one. And, and the practice is referred to as kaziza. And what that means is the village elders now declare that child to be dead. So it, the child can't come back because you're dead. You no longer have any place in our community. You no longer have any, any way to come back. There's no redemption to you available at all. And what the elders would do, if a child tried to come back, then what the elders would do, they would take a clay pot and fill it with dung and, and anything that stinks, anything that's rotten. And, if the, and when the child would be trying to come back to the village, the the mother's responsibility was to follow the elders, asking for mercy, which she's not going to get. The father's responsibility is to stand at the window and watch it, watch what's happening. But it would be uh, not honorable for him to be involved in it. So the wife is the elders are going out with this pot. The wife is the mother is following them crying for mercy for the child. They would meet the the child coming back with this pot, and when they met the child, they would stand in front of them, declare them dead, and smash the pot in front of them, which would splatter on them the content of the pot, making them unclean. And as we know, if they're unclean, you can't come into the village. You couldn't come back. So that's what Kaziza would look like if it was taking place. Jesus tells this story in an incredibly different way. He now says, the father, this always messes me up, the father is looking out the window, not in disdain to the child that's coming back, the father's looking out the window in anticipation of seeing him when he's far off. Why? Why? Because the father has to get to the son before the elders do. What the elders, if the elders pronounce him unclean and smash the pot in front of him, that's irreversible. But if the father can get there first, whatever the father declares over the son is now irreversible. So, what does Jesus say? This father who, first off, gave an inheritance to a son so he could squander it, has never ceased looking out the window, looking for the moment when he sees him on the horizon. Now, what happens? When the father sees him, Jesus says the father then runs to the son. Not the mother. The father runs to the son. For a father, a husband, father, elder in a village, they would never be seen running. It was undignified, mainly because to run, I have to pick up my skirt so I can run. Which according to the law, when I pick up my skirt, I have exposed my nakedness, which is dishonoring. But he would have picked up his skirt and he ran to the sun. Because he was going to get there first. Because the elders were coming. But he gets to the son first, and he says, This is my beloved son, who was lost and now is found, who is dead and now is alive. His declaration trumped the elders. And then he turns to the, to the servants and says, Quick, get the ring, get the robe, get the sandal. And he puts all those on the son. He now brings his son back into the village. Not as the son that has squandered and failed. But as an honorable son in right standing. Wearing the ring and the robe. Declaring who he is. Not who he was. Who he is. So... As Jesus starts to tell us this story, what is he doing? Jesus is redefining what repentance looks like. We have made, we is a very general statement and doesn't pertain to any of us here that I'm talking to. It's all those other we's. We often have made repentance. This place where the person has to be very mindful of what they've done wrong before they're allowed the privilege of being made whole. But Jesus says, no, this is what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like you're in a foreign land, you're slopping the hogs, you're starving, and something in your heart changes and you go, even the servant at my father's house is eating better than me. So his repentance wasn't based on, oh, I just I'm just so, you know, I'm this, I'm that. God, you know, I just I I, I can't even come before you. None of that. His repentance was pretty darn selfish. I'm hungry. Dad's got the grub. I'm going to go back. And I'll be willing to come back, not as a son. I'll just be willing to come back as a servant. Because in the son's mind, he was making the deal before he got there. So he was prepared to make the deal when he arrived. That, okay, I know I can't come back as a son. I know that's out. I know that's never going to happen. But I'll at least come back as a servant. And I wonder how many times when we've interacted with people, maybe it's been our own story, where... At this place of repentance where our heart now starts to have this encounter with Jesus. And those around us remind us that because of what I've done, I'm always going to be a servant. Saved, that's better than being not, but I'm still a servant. But Jesus doesn't paint it that way. He says, once you realized and he turned and he started back, what does the father do? The father meets him with the ring, the robe, the sandals. The father kills the fatted calf. The father says to everyone, Come and celebrate with me that my son is now found, that my son is still now now alive. (laughs) This isn't sheet music, right? This story just makes me leak. I don't know what. It's hard for me to. It's just this invitation to come into the kingdom, this invitation to actually become a child of God. There is no there's no tears to it. There's no second class. There's no, well, we hope, you know, you, you know, Muncie, you have really screwed up. The whole town knows what a nutcase you are. We, we can let you come to church, but man, you're going to have to be careful, and we're going to be very careful of you, because you might short-circuit again, and we might you know, start to have a relationship with you, and then you might fall, you might stumble, you might do this, you might do that, because the most of all, Muncie, the important thing is we don't want you to embarrass us. But the Father doesn't care about being embarrassed. He cares about what's lost and he'll do whatever it takes for the one that's lost. Because for all of us, being lost, it takes him to find me. I can't find myself. My lostness always leaves me in a place I don't know how to get back. In my own experience, I... Got saved in 1972. Had uh, had several years of just just thrilled in this new thing that I had found myself in called Christianity and church and fellowship and and yes, all that was going into it was amazing. And I went away to trade school uh, for the first time since I become a Christian. I was no longer connected with a church and. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't do well. I didn't do well at any level. And I found myself at this place where I'm like, um, I have broken every vow I think that I had made to God, everything I said, him, said to him I would do. I had now failed at all that. I had just, as far as being a Christian, I had failed across the board. And so in my mind, I had committed the unpardonable sin. I didn't know what that was. I still don't really know what it is, but I was sure I had done it. And so I just knew, that's it. I mean, I had a chance. I blew it, and God's mad with me. He's done with me, and if I were to die today, I'm just going to hell, and I deserve it, probably the hotter part. And um, I lived in in that frame of mind for... Uh, about three about three years and uh, at that point I had met Linda we were just newly together and I was doing about everything that I shouldn't be doing that I could do I would do it and so uh, the, our home was pretty much party central on the weekends and we had been on a like a three day binge of stuff and I'm, we're back in the woods. We had a place where we would all go and kind of, you know, sit around there and all that kind of stuff. Getting back to nature thing. And uh, I'm leaning against a tree. And I'm. It's been three days of some real intense party, and I'm shot. And I'm just leaning against a tree, um, as as uh, I don't know, as unconscious as I could get myself. And in the midst of that, as I'm la- sitting there. This voice says, Bob, you know I still love you. There could be other words. I won't use them, but it scared me really bad. (laughs) Really bad. I jumped up, and I'm straight. My heart's racing, and I'm scared. Because... God can't say he still loves me because I'm convinced that he doesn't. But something just said, he loves me. Now, it was weeks later before another encounter, not, not another voice, but just, well, actually, the two of us had been arguing and fighting all weekend. She's at a point where she's ready to leave, although she hadn't told me yet. That's that communication thing of where we just, each of us kind of make decisions and don't fully talk it with the other one. So it was her turn to kind of make that decision and not fill me in. But she had decided, I'm done. I'm not going to put up with this. And she shouldn't have had to put up with it. And so we had been arguing all weekend. And so on a Saturday evening, I said to her, what do you think about going to church tomorrow? And she looked at me with, like, this very odd look because she didn't expect me to be asking that question. And she is, I don't know. We might as well. We've done everything else. So that's a yes. So I called my aunt who attended Lincoln United Methodist Church over in Lincoln. I called my aunt, and I said, what time's church? She told me. I said, well, I think Linda and I are going to be there tomorrow. And I hung up. Now, uh, you know, kind of found out later that once I hung up, the prayer hotline went nuts in (laughs) Sussex County. (laughs) Everybody knew that Linda and I were going to Lincoln Methodist Church tomorrow and pray that we get there, pray, you know. So, yeah, the intercessors were all interceding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it it was the spectacle. And we, we went in, and uh, that first Sunday, I don't know, have, I have no idea what the sermon was, any of that, but at the end of the, of the service, when there was an invitation to come forward for prayer, I went forward. And what I discovered was I was not second class. He put the ring on my finger. He put the robe on my shoulder. He put the sandals on my feet. He said get up and walk with me and we've been walking ever since that which is lost was found and it's and that that is the gospel of Jesus Christ God is not willing that any should perish we sang about it today his voice is everywhere he's speaking to everyone it, He is my creator. He is your creator. If I can can, maybe, for some of us, stretch us a little bit, he's already in me as the creator. It's not that he's trying to somehow get in. it's, It's that he's wanting me to see that he's the God that's always been there, that I've always been seen by him. I've always been loved by him. It's not justifying the the junk we do. It's not about that. It's that he is our creator. Um, Kenneth Bailey, who is a New Testament scholar on on historical um, Jewish life, which is where some of what I've shared, I got from uh, some of his articles. Uh, Bailey says this, Jesus redefines repentance. The son's repentance in the far country, driven by hunger and motivated by fear, will not allow him to see his father's broken heart and his need for reconciliation. In contrast, Jesus' definition of repentance is accepting being found. Only as the son experiences his father's costly demonstration of unexpected love. Will he see his father's love for him and experience peace and shalom? That's from Kenneth Bailey's book, Lost Cultural Keys to Luke 15. That's what salvation is. Salvation isn't about me coming to this place where I just have to get down and grovel and, and, and somehow you know, you know, make sure that everybody knows how wretched I am. Salvation is simply standing before the one who has found me and accepting that I've been found. And it's not based on my ability to stay found. He found me, He is my creator. If I get lost, He'll find me again. He'll find me in the woods leaning against a tree. In, in a drug-induced stupor, and he'll speak to me, or he'll speak to you in whatever language however he needs to say it, he'll speak to you in that moment and say, "I found you. I found you." And the angels start rejoicing. They're found. Heaven starts rejoicing. They're found, and all he's looking for me is just to go... I'm found." Which to be found means you're seen. He's the one that does it. He's the one that keeps us. You know, I, I get the whole accountability thing and all that, and I, you know, I use some of those principles in, both in my own personal life and others. There's, there's places for all that. But i got news for you. No, abil- no amount of accountability is going to keep you if you don't know you're seen. If you don't know you're found, I can be accountable. But all my accountability, my, my life only goes as far as my ability to be accountable to you. But it doesn't flow out of the sense of my own identity that I'm found. I'm a son. I carry the ring. I wear the robe. I have the sandals. And he put those on me. I didn't buy them at the thrift store. He put those on me. He is the one that said, kill the fatted calf. He's the one that said, let's celebrate. Sometimes we can live more in the fear of being lost again than in the love of knowing that I'm found. And the love will keep you. Fear will eat away at you. And then ultimately that thing that I fear becomes that thing that gets me again. Instead of being able to go, i am just found. People may look at us and go, I don't know. I've been watching you. I don't know that you've got all that foundness in you yet. You, You better keep working on that, boy. I am working on it. But I'm working on it not because I'm unfound. I'm working on it because his grace is alive in me. His love is alive in me. The Holy Spirit is alive in me. I have been made a temple of the Holy Spirit. I am found. I am secure. Because my security was never based on my moral code. It was always based on him coming in an unfailing love, coming after me until he found me, and then bringing me home. I don't know where I got this quote from, but it didn't come from me. He that acknowledges a a creation and denies a providence involves himself in a palpable contradiction. For the same power which causes things to exist is necessary to continue their existence. (laughs) He's my creator. I can't exist without him. All things are, are in him, through him, to him. All things are held together by Christ. I can't, I can't exist. You can't exist without him and his life being involved in your life, whether you're acknowledging him or not. You know, we, we don't even know what it's like to live outside of the realms of grace. Grace is alive and well on planet Earth, and it's accessible, and it also touches those that don't even want to access it. it. It's still there. It's still affecting you. It's still doing things because you're his creation. And I can't get outside of grace. David said, you know what? If, If I find myself in the depths of Sheol, you're there. I can't get away from you, God. even when I want to. In that three-year period, not only was I convinced that God was angry at me, I was definitely convinced I didn't want to be around him either because I was pretty sure, you know, that's like really going to be the woodshed there. I don't even want to go to that woodshed. I just, I don't want to be around God. I was totally wrong. He wanted to be around me and was around me all along. He was there in everything I did. He was there in every drink I drank, Drink I took. He was there in every joint I smoked. He was there in everything that I did. He was right there. And he was waiting for the right time where my heart was ready to finally be found. And the minute it was ready, he was right there. He found me the first time, 1972. He found me the second time, 1977. 1977. I can say, having been on both sides of that, it's far better to just live from a state of being found than living from a state of needing to be found. He'll find you. Just stay found. It's much better. Much better. And I think that's all I got to say.